Okay, so um, you may have heard that there was a little sports thing that happened uh, this past week called the World Series. I know uh, we weren't all kind of tuned in on it, but it did happen, and it was quite exciting if you liked that kind of thing. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, even if you don't like baseball, which I'm guessing many of you don't, but if you don't, the, the story of the Houston Astros, who won the series, by the way, in case you were wondering. Um, I know, we have some Texas people here. Uh, Pastor Andrew and his family are from Texas, so they, they were really invested in this. So, you, you know, it, if you want, you should come up to them afterwards and congratulate them. It'll make, you know, they, they really enjoyed that. Um, but the Houston Astros is a fascinating story because you may have heard that in 2014, about three years ago, Sports Illustrated ran uh, a cover issue, and this is the cover. This is from three years ago. This is not from... Uh, this past week, said your 2017 World Series champs. It's eerie almost in its, uh, in its ability to predict what actually happened. But what's fascinating about this story is not just the prediction piece, so that's kind of that's weird. Uh, what's fascinating is how they did it. That the way the Houston Astros became the team that was able to win the World Series in dramatic fashion was basically by doing all of these really small, ordinary things that were kind of extraordinary in their ordinariness. And what I mean by that is they decided not to go out and and draft all of these really expensive, high-end players from other teams, or or I'm sorry, to get players from other teams to kind of piece together something that would get them a quick win. They decided to be content with building slowly from the ground up, even getting rid of really costly, talented people so that they could make room for people coming up through the farm system and build something over the course of years. And it didn't look like a necessarily great strategy early on, as when this article was written, they were kind of the laughing stock of the major leagues. They had lost, I think they had won about a third of the games that they'd lost. You know, they'd lost, like, over the course of three years, they'd lost over 300 games and won, like, 180, something like that. It did not look to be working. But slowly, over the course of years, little decision after little decision began to add up until it coalesced this year into a team that was able to beat the Dodgers in the series. It was the small things, it was the, the little ordinary decisions that were so ordinary they were extraordinary that really made this team what it was. Well, we are continuing a series that we started a couple of weeks ago that we're calling Vista. And in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians that we find in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, uh, along with the the biographies of Jesus, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the rest of the New Testament is largely letters. And the person who's responsible for most of these is a guy named Paul, wrote a lot of letters. One of them is a letter to the Ephesians. And we've been looking at this letter and how it's this, this kind of big picture view of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And as we've been looking at this, we've learned about kind of this gracious God who is working toward a, a very particular end. Like that, that this, this, this reality, this universe, our lives, that this is all heading somewhere. That this gracious God is moving us towards his purposes in a very intentional way. But as we've done this, we've kind of looked at one chapter at a time. We did chapter one and chapter two. This week, we're going to look at 
we're going to look at kind of a piece from each of those chapters because there's something that Paul's been building up to. There's a mystery that Paul's been kind of bit by bit unfolding. And in chapter 3, there's a big reveal. He kind of pulls the curtain back so that we can see what he's been hinting at the whole time. And it's not quite what you would expect. So let's jump in. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 1. If you have a Bible with us, uh, you can turn there. Ephesians is kind of midway through the New Testament towards the back of your Bible. If you don't, uh, we'll have the scriptures up here on the screen. You can read along. So again, Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to begin with verse 9 to verse 10. Paul writes, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Then moving to chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. For Christ himself has brought peace to us, He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. Then moving on to chapter 3 beginning in verse 3. God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So as Paul kind of, he gives the big reveal here. Here's the thing you've been waiting for. It's the mystery he's been alluding to the whole time he's been writing this letter. And here it comes, drum roll please. It's that God is moving everything toward his ultimate purposes, and his primary means of doing this is the church. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first kind of got to this chapter and was thinking about talking about this, I was like, that feels like the biggest kind of anticlimactic moment in all of literature, Right, that, that here we go, here's this big thing that God is doing and how God's going to do it, and it's going to be, it's this huge mystery that's going to be revealed. It's the church. Really? Like, really? That, that's all you got. And I think, well, I don't know about you, but I respond this way, and I think many of my friends respond this way when we talk about the church, because when we think church, we might think about, like, this. Or, or this, or something like that, right? Like a structure, a place that you might come once a week or however often you do that and sing some songs and maybe hear someone talk about scripture, meet some people that you like, talk to them a little bit, maybe have some good coffee and desserts. Whatever, whatever your, the rhythm is, that's kind of your idea of church. And you're like, it's cool, but really? Like that's it. It's the best you can do. Or maybe when you think church, you think 
oppression. You think organization that throughout the centuries has leveraged its power and privilege to push people to the margins that disagreed with them, to get their way at the expense of others. Uh, an organization that's actually been at the forefront of what's wrong in the world. Or maybe it's not quite that maybe it's not quite that negative of a connotation for you, but maybe when you think church, you just think antiquated religious system. And when you read something like this that says, hey, God's mystery is being revealed in the church, your response is like, ah, yeah, no thanks. Been there, done that. Wherever you are, whatever your experience, for many of us, this does not seem like a really exciting thing. In fact, if this is the best that God can do in terms of working out his plan in the world, that says something about God, maybe. Like, this is, this is the best. But this, this isn't actually the picture of the church that we get in Scripture. When Scripture itself talks about what the church is and what the church is to be, and the potential for what the church can do, it's not like that at all. First of all, maybe we should look at the word used for church in the New Testament. Whenever the New Testament talks about the church, it uses this Greek word, ecclesia. And this word ecclesia means the called out ones. It means people who are, who are set apart for God's purpose. It's a group of people who are a part of God's purposes in the world, have identified themselves with what God is doing in a significant way in the world so that they are the expression of God's purpose here and now. That's how we see the church in Scripture. In fact, when Jesus talked about it, and he didn't talk about the church much, but when he talked about it, he seemed to think it was kind of a big deal. There's this place in Matthew, in the, the first biography of Jesus, Matthew's Gospel, where Peter, one of his disciples, one of his students, calls Jesus Messiah, which is this word that means like the one we've been waiting for, the anointed one, the king, our Lord, who's going to rescue us from the Roman Empire, who's going to set things right. He recognizes that Jesus isn't just a teacher. He's something much bigger than that. And this is Jesus' response to him. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. That sounds pretty cool, right? Like, the gates of hell will not stand against it. And as Jesus talks to Peter here about what this is going to be like, we kind of see Peter as this proxy for the church, this, this representative of this, this thing that we, we kind of think of as this really insignificant religious artifact. Jesus says, this is the thing. This, this, he talks about binding and loosing. What, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
different versions use different words, and there's lots of debate over what that means, but what's clear is that Jesus seems to think that this thing, this church, is going to be an instrument by which heaven comes to earth. That it's through the church that God's purposes get worked out in the world. This is what God's doing. The church acts as an agent of heaven on earth. We also see this, if you're familiar with um, what's often called the Lord's Prayer. It's kind of a a prayer that that Jesus teaches his students, um, sometimes called the Our Father, depending on your tradition. And there's this line in there where Jesus teaches them to pray. He he gives them this prayer as a response to their question, Lord, teach us how to pray, or or their, their request. And there's this line that says, May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus teaches his students to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how's that will going to be done? Well, it's going to be done through them. Through them living out God's purposes in the world. Later in, in John's gospel, John's biography of Jesus, the fourth gospel, Jesus says this, after he has died and risen, and he's getting ready to send his students, his disciples, out into the world, he says this, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus sends out these disciples, he says, Just as I've been sent to represent God to the world, as Jesus came to to teach us who God is and what God is like, to show us God's sacrificial love as he lays his life down, to rescue us from our sin and and self-centeredness and egos and death to rescue us. He he rises again and then sends us out as agents of that same reality. People to live out that same truth in the world, to live as Jesus in the world, and he gives us his spirit. He breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so the church, according to Jesus are those who, because we trust in Christ, we are living out the way of Christ in the world, empowered by the Spirit of God who works in us and through us so that God's purposes can actually happen, so God's kingdom can actually come on earth as it is in heaven. This is what this is supposed to be about. This is what the church is supposed to be. Not a, not a building, not a religious experience, but the way in which God brings about his kingdom in the world. In their book, Resident Aliens, uh, Stanley Hauervoss and Will Wilmon describe church in this way. They say, The church exists today as resident aliens, an adventurous colony in a society of unbelief. The church is not a place, a fortified position, Be it theological or geographical, it is a people on the move, like Jesus' first disciples, breathlessly trying to keep up with Jesus. It is an adventure with many unknowns, internal arguments over which turn to take in the road, conversations along the way, visits to strange places, introductions and farewells, and much looking back and taking stock. That sounds kind of compelling to me. I don't know about you, but I don't often think about adventure when I think about church. 
I don't, I don't know if you do, but that's not often, they're not often synonymous. But one of the th- reasons why I think that's true is because we often look at it, we often understand something as adventure largely when we look back on it, when we kind of stand afar from it, not when we're in the middle of it, but when we stand back and look at how it's all worked out, it's in retrospect that we can recognize just how adventurous something really was. Um, I think about the parenting when I think about adventure, partly because I have four children, and they're getting old enough now that I'm kind of reflecting back, and I'm looking ahead at the same time, and I'm realizing just how crazy this whole thing is. And, you know, if you're a parent or if you're not a parent, you kind of know how we as a culture look at parenting. It's easy for us to, to idealize parenting. You know, we talk about how, how wonderful and amazing children are and how they're these, you know, you look at them up here, right? And you, you see them all dressed and cute with, you know, the little bonnets on and things. And, and you just hear the audible, aww, right? And we're like, oh, that's so, it's so wonderful. And, and we post pictures on Facebook that show how wonderful and awesome our kids are. And, and how, how great and, and joyful our family is. Like this morning. So today, uh, my daughter celebrates her 15th birthday. And so I did the obligatory grace, stand here and, and smile. And siblings come around her and hug her. And everyone smile and look happy. And I took a picture and I posted it on Facebook. So that you will look and go, their family is perfect. <laughs> they love each other. They're, they're always happy and smiling. It must be so nice for them. Right? Because that's why we do it. But that's not actually what happens. Right? Like, you see these, these beautiful, wonderful kids here, and you don't see how long it took their parents to cram them into these outfits as they're screaming. <laughs> right? Like, you don't see the, the, them losing it on the way here as the child screaming in the background and spitting out the binky and they can't find the blanket. Who, you forgot the blanket? Oh my, this is going to be horrible. And you, you just, you don't see that, right? You, you don't see the fact that, well, you know, my, my daughter will smile happily when I take the picture of her to post on Facebook and announce to everyone that it's her 15th birthday. You don't see the times throughout those 15 years that we've made her cry. Or that she's made us cry. Right? Like, you don't see that stuff. But that is what makes a person a person. It's not the extraordinary moments that you post on Facebook. It's the everyday, the the minute-by-minute moments where you have to do really ordinary but extraordinary things. It's... You know, it's the willingness to stay up all night when your child is screaming and you know the alarm's going off at 5.30. And you try everything, but the kid just won't shut up. It's, it's the, the standing up in front of people here and, and doing this really weird thing where you say, I'm going to raise my kid in the way of Jesus and I need help. And then you let someone like me put oil on their head and pray for them. And it feels odd and normal but extraordinary at the same time. It's taking the time when you ask your kid how their day went to listen, to have a conversation. It's learning to say two really difficult things to your children. One is no, and the other is I'm sorry. 
It's choosing to do the work of planning out a weekly menu so that you know that your kids are actually going to eat something that you don't microwave once in a while. And it's choosing more times than you'd like to admit to say no to doing the thing that you would love to do because you should do this other thing for your kids. It's these ordinary moments that if you have kids, you remember. And if you don't have kids, part of maturity is when you get to a place where you go, you know, all of us, as a parent, I can say this. My favorite thing to tell people is, my role as a parent is to keep therapists employed for generations to come. Right? And so, um, so we're all going to mess our kids up. We're all going to make mistakes. Your parents made mistakes. My parents made mistakes. Lord knows I have made mistakes with my kids. Um, that's just it's part of life. But part of maturity is getting to a place where, regardless of all of that, we look back and we go, for most of us. Now, some of us had horrendous experience with our parents. Most of us can look back, and even if there was some, some challenges with our parents, we can go, here are the things, here are the ways that they really sacrificed in significant ways um, to make sure that I could have some kind of meaningful life. And yeah, it wasn't perfect, and I wish they would have done this differently, or I wish they wouldn't have done that. But they did their best. They, they really did. And so whether you have kids or not, we can all step back and go, this is part of what it means to be a parent. And part of how you create a beautiful, adventurous adult is by the everyday, normal choices that you make to help your child grow and develop and mature. It's a million, sometimes really painful and difficult, but vastly unsexy decisions that you have to make day in and day out to help your kid move forward. And this is, I think, what makes the church a gathering like this. Again, when I say church, I know it's easy to picture a building or like rituals, but that's not what I mean. What what makes a, a community of people who come together around this belief that Jesus is Lord, that this God of grace is moving us all somewhere, and we're being invited to go together, and not only just go together, but to live this out in some transformative way in the world. What makes that so transformative for us is not the big, huge, adventurous moments. It's the very normal, ordinary choices that we make day in and day out, together and individually, to live out the way of Jesus in our lives. Paul points this out. Uh, If you remember the scripture we read, he talks about how it's in the church that Christ is breaking down the wall of hostility and bringing peace. That it's in and through the church that the Spirit is working to reveal God's ultimate plan to bring everything together under the authority of Christ. That this is how people come to understand the story that they're a part of, that they might not even be awake to yet. That God is bringing all things together under Christ. The only way anybody understands what that means is if we choose to live that out together in some meaningful way. And it doesn't, it's not the big things, it's the little things. It's the learning what it looks like to forgive someone who hurts you. 
Because any time you get together in a group like this and you try and do life together, in any group, in any setting, you're going to hurt one another. People are going to do stupid things. Sometimes they're going to do selfish things that's going to cause hurt and pain. And part of what it means for us to come together as students of Jesus is to go, well, part of what that means is to learn to live in forgiveness. And so if I'm hurt, I don't just reject people who hurt me. I work toward reconciliation. I work toward forgiveness. I offer forgiveness. I ask for forgiveness. And we work that out. It's learning to do that together here and outside of these walls. It's practicing actually loving our neighbors. Not in some kind of big splash kind of way, though those can be cool, but in everyday normal ways where you take a meal to someone who just had a baby or is in the hospital. Where you hear about someone who's struggling and you call them up for a cup of coffee or you call up a couple of friends who know them and together you invite them to go out together so you can just connect. It's recognizing that there are neighbors who are really different than you who you may not end up being with them normally because you're a different socioeconomic level, you're a different um, age bracket, you're a different ethnicity, whatever the thing that might be that would divide you, recognizing that that division exists and going, you know what, I'm not going to passively allow these things to create divisions. I'm going to step through that and build relationship because I believe that part of what God is about in the world is bringing all things together under Christ. And so I'm going to, I'm going to, step through these passive divisions and actively pursue engaging people who are different than I am. This is part of what makes the church so transformative. And this is what we get to work out together, really imperfectly. And it doesn't seem all that impressive. But if we together figure out what it looks like to be people who love and forgive and press through barriers and, and stop, stop excluding people, but rather open up the doors to include people, to welcome people in. If we're people who live lives of self-giving love in really practical ways, in our office places, in our families, in our communities, if we learn to live this out in a million different, unsexy, everyday, normal ways, then we can, in fact, be a transformative influence in the world. And I think the primary way that we change the world is by first changing ourselves and then looking for the next thing to do in front of us. How do I serve the person next door to me? How do I serve the person who I know of, I heard about, they're in the hospital. I don't know if anybody's visiting them. Frankly, it doesn't matter. I'm going to go visit them. I know there's a neighbor down the street who's lonely. I'm going to invite them out for coffee. I know that there's a single mom in the church who has kids, and, and I'd, I'd love to be a part of helping out in any way that I can. I'm not talking about big, splash things. though. There's a place for those. I'm talking about the normal, everyday things that break through dividing walls, that build relationships, that make a difference in people's lives, that it's those things that ultimately lead to big change. Scott McKnight talks about this in this way. In his book, Kingdom Conspiracy, he says this. He says, building a local church is hard. 
It involves people who struggle with one another. It involves persuading others of the desires of your heart to help the homeless. It means caring for people where they are and not where you want them to be. It involves daily routines, and it only rarely leads to the highs of short-term missions experiences. But local church is what Jesus came to build. So the local church's mission shapes kingdom mission. So what he's talking about there when he talks about kingdom mission is he's talking about what God is up to in the world. That is, God is looking to bring about life and hope and peace. As he's looking to draw people to himself and transform people's lives and bring healing in relationships, that the primary way that God, not that God never works outside of this, but that the primary way that God choose to work that, chooses to work that stuff out is through messed up people like you and me learning together who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to in the world and trying really imperfectly to live that out together. This is how God is choosing to change the world. This is how he's choosing to bring about his purposes through groups of people who say Jesus is Lord and so that changes everything. So a couple of, of questions to throw out for you to think about, kind of takeaways as we wrap things up. And then we're going to move into a time of, I think we'll have a few minutes for Q&A. If you're new with us, we tend to uh, take some time at the end of every morning to interact together. So if you have questions about anything I've said or, or a statement, something you want to add, uh, even a disagreement, as long as you're kind about it, that'd be great. Um, so we'll, we'll interact a little bit. We'll have someone with a mic around. I think Andrew will have a mic. Uh, if you don't, if you have something you want to add, but don't like raising your hand and being in front of people, um, there's a, a phone number on the back of your bulletin. You can also text a question to that, and we'll try to get to those as well. But a couple of, of takeaways, a couple of things to think about. First question, what are the big picture concerns that you have about the world that you feel need to be addressed? This is just a reflection question. For many of us, there are big picture things that really kind of, they, they churn up our passion, right? And it may be something like um, injustice, human trafficking, homelessness, um, inequities we see in a, a prison system or an education system. It might be, it might be racism or immorality or, or some form of oppression. Whatever it is, what is that thing? What is the thing that most kind of riles you, makes you stand up and go, that's not the way it ought to be. Somebody ought to do something about that. Okay, so reflect on that a little bit. You probably need more time than what I'm giving you now, but for the sake of time, we're going to keep moving. As you reflect on that, the second question I would like you to think about is, how might God be inviting you to do something Ordinary in your day-to-day life to make an impact on that issue. And when I say ordinary, that's maybe not even the appropriate word because the ordinary thing would be to do nothing or to look at around and point fingers and say that person or that organization or that position or that party ought to do something. But the extraordinary thing might be to say, what would it look like for me to live in such a way that it expressed God's desires for these people? What's one thing I could do? So if the thing that stirs in you is something about racism, what's one thing you can do 
to make choices to step through apathy and dividing walls to build relationships with people from a different ethnicity than you are, a different culture from you? What's one thing you can do? Does that solve all the problems? Of course not. But what's one step you can take? If the issue that concerns you is, is one of you know, homelessness, let's say, what's one choice that you could make that would allow you to participate in some meaningful way to bring about hope and life in regards to homelessness locally? could be something as simple as serving a meal at a homeless shelter as a first step. Getting to know people who work at the homeless shelter and learning ways that you and your church, us, could be a meaningful part of what they're doing. Is there something that really, that you're passionate about that you're waiting for someone else to move on? And the invitation might be for you to take the next step. And as a community of followers of Jesus, there might be some friends who can go along with you, where you can grab a couple of people and say, hey, this is something I'm really passionate about. It's been stirring in my heart. We've had conversations about this. What if we did this together? What if we together took this step? It doesn't make everything go away but it does move us towards partnering with God and what God is doing in the world in ways that actually have a transforming effect, that actually begin to make a difference. Because at the root of most of these is division in relationship. And taking steps through those divides to build bridges, to build relationships, is key in doing something small but extraordinary in making a difference. You may be familiar with the Mother Teresa quote that there are no great things, only small things done with great love. I love that quote. Because as much as we get excited about these big picture issues, it's easy to become paralyzed with the amount of tragedy and um, just the, the injustices that exist in the world. But the invitation for us as followers of Jesus and as a church is to not become paralyzed, but to be empowered by God's spirit to say, what can I do here? What can I do now? I might not have the answers for this global thing, but there's something in front of me that I can do. What is that? How might you take that step? And then finally, would be a question for those of you who would call Koinos your home, is how can we together as a local church continue to do small things with great love? What are things that we can do together collectively that maybe we can't do individually that will move us towards being a part of what God's doing in our community here? And this is something that, you know, you need to know as a leadership team, we pray about, we talk about. Even just recently in our last leadership team meeting, the, the conversation came up where the leadership team said, hey, we really need to re-engage in a more significant way in our local community. There are ways that there's been uh, there, there's been some things we've tried that, that haven't kind of worked the way we wanted them to. We need to kind of redouble our efforts to turn around and go, this is a real priority for us as a community. How do we re-engage in a meaningful way together, in a way that makes a difference? And so that's part of, even as we move into 2018, we're thinking together. And as people who are part of Koinos, who are Koinos, right? Koinos is you. It's not 
You're not a part of a larger thing. You are the thing. We need you to be praying for us. We need to be hearing from you as that you're passionate about things. You, some of you have come with passions that end up becoming things that we get behind as a church. Some of you come with passions that end up being things that we say, that's awesome. That might not be our thing as a church right now, but we want to encourage you to do that. And both of those are needed. But we need together to be listening for how God might be empowering us to make a difference in our community. I want to close with this. Um, this is a quote from J.R.R. Tolkien, um, but ostensibly out of the mouth of Gandalf, if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings series. Gandalf says, he's speaking about Bilbo Baggins and why a hobbit would be chosen to carry the ring. And Gandalf says, Some believe it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. It is the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. And this is what I feel more and more that we we have the opportunity to do as a community that we can have tremendous impact as we look at what are the next small things that we can do, what are the next small steps that we can take as individuals and as a community to live out God's gracious love in, in our communities, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our families. And I think if we do that, this is the way that God's going to bring transformation and change into our lives and into the lives of people in our communities that we care about. Well, Father, it is humbling uh, to think about the big kind of mystery, the big reveal being that you want to work your purposes out through us, those who follow you in a, a million different kind of small, ordinary, but also extraordinary ways by choosing to, to love our neighbor, to, to take risks, to engage with people who are different than we are. Whatever that looks like for each of us, God, would you, would you empower us, would you encourage us to be people who live lives that reflect you in the world? Would you help us to help each other? I pray that as a church that we would be a place that supports one another and motivates one another towards responding courageously in faith, choosing to to love and serve even when it's hard. That we wouldn't be a place that we'd come and, and hide from things that are hard, but we'd be a place where we actually motivate one another, encourage one another, walk with one another, pray for one another in engaging in the hard things, in doing things with great love. Would you empower us by your spirit to have an impact in our community, individually and together as a church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.